We're going to be turning to the gospel according to Mark this morning, uh, chapter 16. It's amazing after all that, I've done 25 Easter sermons now, and, uh, and, and out of all those, I'm not sure that I've ever preached from the gospel of Mark, so that was really the, my purpose uh, this morning in, in doing this, because we have four renditions of the things that we're going to talk about this morning, each, each of those being found in each one of the gospels. And, uh, and Mark's is the briefest, which some of you may rejoice in because you know that I can go a little bit long sometimes and that sort of thing. Uh, I was reading some things this week that were very disturbing. It is an amazing thing how the culture is changing around us, and we all see it, we all know that it's true, that the culture that... These young people are growing up in today is very different than the culture that I grew up in and, the, uh, the, and very different from the culture that uh, the people in this room that are senior to me, not that there are that many, but some of them, that uh, the culture is just, it's just like being on a different planet almost than what we were used to. Uh, I was reading some statistics this week just to get some idea of how the culture looks upon the resurrection of Jesus uh, in just general kind of terms. Uh, this was a Rasmussen poll that would, took place in 2012 and 2013, but in 2012, the, the, the results of the poll indicated that 77% of Americans believed in the resurrection of Jesus. That number probably is a little higher than most of us would think. But then in 2013, in one year it dropped, and this is the same polling company asking the same questions, certainly to a different group of people, but a representative portion of, uh, of our society. Uh, the 77% had dropped to 64% in one year. I read this week that a BBC poll in England that they're saying that one quarter of the people who identify themselves as Christians do not believe in the resurrection. Sadly, if you're familiar with the scripture in Corinth, when Paul was in Corinth, there were people in the church who were denying the resurrection of Jesus and therefore the resurrection of the saints. Another interesting thing that we have seen, and, and, and I really believe with all of my heart that it's a direct product of this, that as disbelief grows in our culture, teen suicide increases, diagnosed oppressions increase. People are worse off in all kinds of ways because they look upon life, they look upon things in general as being without hope. There's a sense in which hopelessness is growing. That is the reason that we're seeing so many of the negative things take place that are so obvious to us. Take away the resurrection, then Christianity becomes just another religion that it really ultimately is without hope. 
So Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right hand wearing a white robe and were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. They go tell his disciples, And Peter, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said to you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they had, or they said nothing to anyone, uh, for they were afraid. Today, there are very few people that really recognize in the, any idea at all that the, of a Sabbath day, one week in seven, that is set aside for worship and for for rest. We need to realize that in the culture that Jesus grew up in, in the culture that Jesus lived in, uh, that the Sabbath was something that was very important to everyone. It was regulated by very strict laws and regulations, things that you were allowed to do and things you were not allowed to do. For most people in those days, I would imagine the idea of the Sabbath had become a curse, not a blessing. When indeed, God had given it to us to be a blessing. Jesus came to do a number of things, and one of those things was to strike down legalistic religion. Religion whereby people believe that if they only were good enough, if they only kept the law well enough, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that they could earn their way to heaven on their own. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is striking directly at the heart of legalism. There were people who came that day on that mountain to listen to him preach, and and he challenged them in ways that they did not expect. Most of them came there believing that they were good people and that they, they were well on their way to God's blessings because of the goodness of life that they, they lived because they kept those Ten Commandments and this, that, and the other. And all the other laws that had been imposed upon them. There were people, don't you think there were people there that day? Most of the people there that day, maybe with few exceptions, would be able to say to, to, to anyone that I have never literally killed anybody in my lifetime. I've never committed murder. Well, Jesus pierced them in the heart. Because he redefined for them what murder is. Murder is simply being angry with another person. So how many people, how many innocent people were there now? The answer is absolutely nobody. And he did that over and over and over again. Many of the the men there, many of the women there could have been able to say that I have never committed adultery uh, uh, against my spouse. 
But Jesus made the picture very clear there in, in saying that it's not just the act of doing, it's the thinking about it. It's having lust. If you've ever lusted then for, for someone that you're not married to, then you have broken that commandment. And you know what Jesus said? He said you've broken it sufficiently enough to be thrown into hellfire for all of eternity. So it's not like you broke it a little bit. You trashed it completely. How many good people were left on the mountain? Absolutely none. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, these women have been with Jesus for several years now, and they had ministered to him. They're the ones who very often prepared his meals. They went with him wherever he went. They loved him. They were devoted to him. Their life seemed to come crumbling down when he was crucified. It should not surprise us at all, however, that because of their great love and their devotion to their Lord, that they wanted to go to the grave and make sure that his body was ceremonially prepared in the manner that it was called to be. If you're familiar with the Gospels, we know that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they were the ones that uh, they released the body to, and they had taken the body of Jesus and wrapped it in cloths, and they had anointed him with a 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes. We also know that these women, at least one or two of them, were watching at a distance, so they saw what had gone on. They knew where the tomb was. They saw him laid in the tomb. They left. And then the Sabbath came upon them. Started at 6 o'clock on Friday. 6 o'clock p.m., and it went to 6 o'clock p.m. Saturday. During that time, because of the strictness of their law, they were not allowed to do things like prepare bodies for burial. Now, just think about their hearts. Think about the things that were going on in their mind during those 24 hours when they desperately wanted to go to Jesus, they desperately wanted to tend to Jesus, and they could not do that. Their minds and their hearts would have been consumed with this during those 24 hours. They had been with Jesus in his life, and they wanted to be desperately with Jesus in his death. But we need to understand something. They came as early as they possibly could be there. Now, the Sabbath ended at 6 p.m. on Saturday, and they didn't go until the next morning. But what's in between is... Darkness.
we don't realize this, but, uh, but most of us don't really experience darkness uh, in the way that many people used to. I mean, can you imagine being dependent upon nothing but campfires and torches and candles to see at night? Period. Not the kind of lights that we have. Lori and I, one, years ago, we were in Las Vegas, not for the gambling. We went there. We just, it was just kind of our home base, and we went to the Grand Canyon, and we went up to Zion Canyon and other places in Utah. And we'd been up to Zion Canyon one day, and we're driving back to Las Vegas that night, and you could literally see the lights of Las Vegas 100 miles away. Jerusalem was not like that in those days. At night, it was a very dark place. Everywhere was very dark at night. Besides that, I don't know too many people that want to visit cemeteries at night. They're just extra creepy at night. I don't know what it is about it. But they go as soon as they possibly can go. Early on Sunday morning. As soon as the sun rose. They're saying to one another, you know, what about the stone? What I want to say is, didn't you think about that before you even started out? You know, like, like, you know this. You know that all of them at one time had thought about how we're going to get this massive stone away from the front of the tomb. Obviously, the three of us are not strong enough to do it. But now they have this conversation kind of between one another. How are we going to do it? How are we going to get the stone away? Now, I don't know how much you know about these things, but, uh, but in Jerusalem, they've, they've unearthed close to a thousand of these types of tombs that were either caves that they sealed up or they were places where people actually chiseled caverns into the stone. And they would be sealed up. And the reason they sealed them was to guard the contents of the tomb from grave robbers. It wasn't to keep anything inside, it was to keep the outside from coming in. There's been a lot of controversy over the shape of the stone. Was it round? Was it square? Was it cork-shaped? Okay, those are the options so far. It turns out that, that 900 of those, that, those tombs that have been located in, in the area of Jerusalem, that 900 of them had square stones. Okay. Only 40 or 50 of them have rounded stones. And obviously rounded for the purpose that it makes it easier to move the stone. All you have to do is roll it one way or the other. But those stones were very expensive. Because you can imagine how difficult it would be to take a rock and make a round thing out of it. They were purposely very heavy 
so that they could not be moved very easily. And we know this. We know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had gone, and they were looking upon things here a little bit differently, and that is this. They saw that stone as a way to keep Jesus in the tomb. They were afraid that the disciples of Jesus were going to go when they were going to open the tomb up and they're still the body away, and then they're going to start telling everybody that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. So they've gone to the Romans to have the Romans seal it, to put the Roman seal on it. But it basically says if you touch this stone, then you're going to die. Let me ask you something. Do you really care if it was round or square? Does that make one whit of a difference to you? It just goes to show you how people take little trivia things and they try to make mountains out of molehills that really have no meaning or bearing upon anything. And the whole thing is there, it had to be round if it it was rolled away. I'd say hogwash. If you had to get a, a stone that was square from one place to another and it was too heavy for you to pick up and you moved it, what would you say you did? You rolled it. It had corners on it and et cetera, and it made it harder to roll, but you still rolled it. That's how you got it in, uh, out of the way, right? And I just bring this to your attention. So sometimes people get wrapped up in these semantics that have little or no bearing on anything of value at all. It's ridiculous. The conversations that have taken place in, in regard to what I would say to you is the most miraculous event that ever took place in recorded, recorded history. There's absolutely nothing that comes close to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as far as history goes. Because of the mightiness and the power of it, and because of the effect it has had on multitudes of people down through the generations. So they fretted just briefly about the stone, but then they get there and then the stone is rolled away. It's amazing that the tomb was big enough for people to enter into, and evidently that it held more than just a body. It held several people at least could fit into it. And they enter there, and they find this young man sitting. Now, we understand from the rest of the Gospels, it was just not some young man. This young man did not come and push the stone away and just gone in and sat down. We understand that this is a description of an angel. Uh, Matthew actually tells us that an angel had descended from heaven and moved the stone. Wearing the white robe of an angel. They were amazed. Have you ever seen an angel? Well, our granddaughter back there, some people would say she's an angel. Not quite the same thing. In the Bible, 
every time anyone ever encounters an angel, they are absolutely amazed by it. Every single account in Scripture of angels coming to people, people are amazed. They are in amazement over the appearance of this heavenly person. Notice here that the angel, angels are messengers from God. They, they, they are not the way they are because they want to be worshipped or because they want people to think very highly of them and, uh, and that sort of thing. They don't want the attention of people. What you'll see angels doing over and over again is taking the focus off of them and putting the focus on God. No. Don't be amazed because you see me. Be amazed because you're looking for Jesus who was crucified and he's risen from the dead. That's what you ought to be amazed about. Not that you've encountered me, just a lowly angel of God. He's not here. The crazy thing is, Jesus had been telling the disciples for a very long time all of this stuff. He told them a long time before they ever went to Jerusalem. Not once, and he, 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 he told them on a regular basis these things. That he would get to Jerusalem and that the elders and the priests would arrest him and they would abuse him. And they would crucify him. They would kill him. But that was not the end of it. He also told them that he would be raised from the dead. The amazing thing is this, is when it really happened, it's like they all, they all believed, and this was true for all of the disciples. Those 11 guys left after Judas was out of the picture. The whole idea that Jesus was going to re be resurrected or had, had resurrected was like, like foreign to all of them. It's like they'd never heard it before in their lifetime. That when it comes, it is the, just this unbelievable surprise to them. Even though Jesus had been telling them all along it was going to happen. They didn't expect it. And what happened was this, is that when, when they struck Jesus... The disciples scattered in fear. Because if they did that to him, they could also very easily do that to me. Peter and John and James and all those other guys, they were hiding. They didn't go to the grave. They didn't go to the tomb. They were hiding in fear. That something really bad was going to happen to them. These women were courageous. 
They went and did something that nobody else at that point was willing to do. They're told them here, the, the, the angel tells them that they're go and tell the disciples and Peter, notice here, and Peter's, Peter's name is brought to the forefront here. A couple of reasons for that. Mark was a disciple of Peter, so, so Mark knew Peter very well, so maybe it's a way for him just to kind of elevate Peter a little bit. But it's really more than that. If you know the Gospels, you know it's really more than that that Peter was the one above all the others that had publicly denied Christ three times. And in essence, Jesus wants Peter to know that he's been forgiven. And they're told to go to Galilee, that uh, Jesus is going to appear to them there. But we know this. We know that before that happens, that they actually encounter Jesus in Jerusalem. In that upper room, he comes to them. And one of them wasn't there. Uh, Thomas was not there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. And What did he say to them when, when they told him that Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them and that is I won't believe it unless I can put my my finger my hand in his side and, and and see the nail marks in his hands but Jesus appeared again and Thomas was there he declared to him you are my savior and my God We're told here that when they left the tomb, they were trembling and astonished. You need to understand that the word that is used here in the Greek means doesn't mean that they casually left or, you know, they just kind of sauntered out of the tomb. They ran from the tomb out of terror. They were afraid. so afraid that they let their emotions get the best of them and they didn't do what they were instructed to do right off the bat. They didn't go and tell anyone. They were afraid to. Now let me ask you something. How many times have you told people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I mean, how many times have you had you sat down with someone and with your mouth told them about the resurrection of Jesus? If you have, hallelujah, you're supposed to. If you haven't, you're still those women 
letting your fears get the best of you. You're keeping the very greatest, most blessed news that you could possibly ever share with another person from them just simply because you're afraid to talk to them. You're afraid they might think that you're a whack job because you believe in something so ridiculous. You're afraid that you won't have the right words to say, that you'll just mess it all up, and that person will be lost forevermore just because you did such a bad job. Let me tell you a story. First time I ever went out on an evangelistic meeting with someone. There was a friend of mine and I went, and we'd just gone through evangelism training. And we were sent out. We'd never done it before. We'd never been with anyone that had done anything like this before. And I can remember standing in their driveway before we went up to the house, and we were going cold turkey, purple people, and you know we're going. You know, we were just going to go knock on this door. These people had visited the church one time, but we didn't know anything about them, didn't know what they thought, didn't know what they believed, anything. And so we went inside, and we'd love to tell you, we prayed. We were praying big time. Not just at the car, but the whole time we were walking up the sidewalk, and once we got inside, we continued to pray that we were not going to mess this up. But then we started sharing with them, and let me tell you, we messed it up about as bad as you could possibly mess it up. But then we got to the end of it, and, and we said this because we were supposed to, and that is, would you like for us to pray for you to receive what we've shared with you? And they said, yes. They said, yes. And I looked at Dennis, and he looked at me, and we were shocked. <laughs> There's no other way to describe it. We were absolutely shocked. We had messed things up so much. How could you even get the gospel out of what we shared with these people? And I just bring that to your attention so you understand something. This can't be fearful to do this. It is fearful to be faithful to Jesus and do the things that Jesus has called you to do. But you cannot let your fears keep you from being faithful. You just can't. We're talking about eternity here. Because what the Bible teaches us is this, is Jesus' resurrection was just the beginning. His resurrection made the, the greater resurrection, in a sense, coming later to take place. A resurrection that every soul that has ever lived on planet earth will be a part of unless they happen to be living at the time Jesus returns. But I want to be clear this morning. This, I want you to understand the scripture is very clear about this. That when that resurrection comes, some people are going to be resurrected to glory and some people are going to be resurrected to destruction. 
glory to those, as we've been in the book of Revelation just recently, glory to those who bear the mark of the Christ on their forehead. They know him as Lord and Savior. They love him. They serve him. But then there are also those who bear the mark of the beast. Their bodies will be resurrected, but they will be cast into eternal destruction. Now, people don't like that message today. But my job is not to make everybody here feel good and wonderful. My job is to challenge all of us where we happen to be. And if that means helping people to feel wonderful, then wonderful on the other end of it. But my job is to make sure that no one walks out of here this morning thinking that they are heaven bound when they have no reason to believe it. And one of two things is going to happen. We're going to all be resurrected. Unless we have to be living at the time that Christ comes back. But we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Every single one of us. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father, but through me. So is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Savior? And does your life show that? Sometimes it's easy to talk about things, but it's a totally different thing when it comes down to living it. Is there real fruit? Is there real evidence that you indeed are a disciple of Jesus Christ in your life? Or do you just see him as your ticket to heaven? That's all of you. Being a Christian is a life thing. It's not just a little niche in your life. It's not just something that you do on occasion. It defines who you are in every way. It is the most central thing to your existence. I don't know where you're at this morning. I just want to say this. When I do weddings, I always try to give advice and counsel to the young couple or older couple if they happen to be older. Uh, But I believe this with all of my heart and soul. That if we all did this, life would be great. That in essence, the very best thing that every one of us can do for ourselves, can do for our wives or husbands, can do for our children, can do for the rest of our family, can do for our friends, can do for other people we know, is to nurture our own relationship with Jesus Christ. Live Jesus. Grow in Jesus. And your life will be transformed. And you know what? 
it's going to help transform the lives of other people. So I just want to encourage all of you to celebrate today. Today is a day worth celebrating. It's, 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 it's the day above days to be celebrated. Since God created man in the Garden of Eden so many years ago, it's the hallelujah of hallelujahs. Enjoy it. Have a good time.